I appreciate Aaron thanking and recognizing people who are serving us well. I'm going to mention this guy's name for the second time, and it's no mistake because this guy does a lot around here. And I had had it written in my notes to do it, and I told him this morning I was going to do it, but um, we owe thanks to two men in our church because we finally have a working baptistry, which is really awesome. And Dave Lever and Dennis Pachinski attacked that thing, and for like a period of a couple weeks, I kept seeing them walk in and out with different parts, leaving with stuff, shaking their heads, walking back in, um, and... and uh, Several times Dave said, I think we have it, and like, I don't think we have it, I think we have it, I don't, we have it. So um, the exciting thing is we, can, we don't have to baptize in the horse trough anymore, we can baptize here. Several of you have talked to me about baptism, and so I remember who you are, and I'm going to be talking to you about getting baptized. You could be the first one in the newly repaired baptistry. So looking forward to that. Um, how many of you are thankful? We just sang about God's mercy. How many of you are thankful that God forgives? Our, our subject today deals with a merciful, forgiving God. Um, I don't know about you, but um, I shouldn't even be standing in front of you apart from God's forgiveness, right? And before we begin this morning, I want you to do something. I want you just to quiet your heart, bow your head, and thank God for what he's forgiven you of. Would you do that? And then I'll lead us in prayer. Oh, Father, when we recount, even those of us with not very good memories, when we recount all the things that we have done that deserve condemnation, that deserve punishment, that deserve judgment, we shudder at the weight of those things. And then when we consider that Christ died for us and that you, in your grace and mercy, would impute the righteousness of Christ to us so that we can be forgiven, our hearts are thrilled this morning. And this morning we are going to look in the pages of your word and we're going to find out that this man who we sometimes see as larger than life, Abraham, this great hero of the faith, this patriarch, this one who, who left all to follow you and, and to go to a place that, that he had no idea where he was going to end up, this guy dealt with sin just like we do here today in Johnstown, Ohio. And if we're honest with you, Father, every single one of us has a certain sin that just nips at our heels. May not be the same one as the person sitting next to us, but every one of us has a sin that just nips at us. It's constantly pulling on us and tugging on us. Which is why we're so grateful for your forgiveness. We're also grateful for the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that, that can help us to resist temptation. And so this morning, as we open the pages of your word, I pray that you would bring it alive in our hearts. I pray that you would make it real to us. This wouldn't just be another story that we've heard, but that this would be truth that would come alive in our hearts. And so, Father, we ask you, what we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give to us this morning. And what we are not, 
Make us through Jesus Christ our Lord, we ask. In his name, amen. So, before we dig in, I want to encourage you to do something this week. How many of you like homework? I'm going to give you some homework to do this week, okay? And it's not even related to this, what we're going to preach about, but, but someone did this to me this week, and I needed it so much. I want to encourage you to go out of the normal course of your life this week. Get out of your usual rhythm, and, and I, want you to encur- I want to encourage you to do something, and I want you to go out of the normal course of your life to do something that benefits someone in this fellowship this week. Now, that can take various forms. The way that I was benefited this week was I had a dear, dear brother who loved me enough to come and sit down with me and point a finger at me and say, there's something you need to work on. I needed that. Now, it may not have felt very encouraging at the time, but I needed it. Boy, did I need it. Maybe someone you know needs encouragement. Maybe somebody needs a random text from you just this week saying that you're going to pray for them. Will you just break your normal course of life at some point this week to be an encouragement to somebody in this fellowship? Look around this room. Everybody looks so pretty in their Sunday morning clothes. They're all put together. But how many of you on the inside are just like not as put together on the outside? Yeah. Yeah. How many of you can use some encouragement this week? Yeah. So do it this week. It's one of the ways that God uses to build our faith in the giving of that and in the receiving of that. In the giving and the receiving. And what I have found is faith is like a muscle. Anybody else found that? Faith is like a muscle. When I exercise it, it's, it's pretty good. But when I let it, when I let it lapse a little bit, it atrophies and it doesn't, it's not as strong as it should be. And what we're going to see this morning is that we have Abraham, who's a man of faith, right? We're going to look at the end of this message at Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith, by faith. Here is this guy, Abraham, who is this great man of faith. And let's think about it. It takes a lot of faith to follow an unseen God and leave your homeland and go to an unknown place. Anybody agree with me that takes faith? It takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? It takes a lot of faith... To, to give your selfish, bratty nephew the first choice of pasture land. Doesn't it? It takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of faith to believe that God's going to give you a son in your old age. It takes a lot of faith. Abraham was a man of faith, but he was a man, though. I say that because even as I prayed this morning, we, we read about Abraham... We read about Abraham, and, and he becomes larger than life, I think, sometimes. Like, this guy never struggled with anything. This guy never dealt with sin. This guy never battled, battled temptation. And, and let's just be honest, he's a man. He was a man with sinful weaknesses and tendencies just like you and me. He battled with his flesh just like you and I have to every day. Any of you, any of you tired this week from battling your flesh? Yeah. And that comes out in a big way this morning in our text. Now, as we keep moving forward in Genesis, one of the things we're gonna, that you're going to have to get used to, quite honestly, is we're going to be taking big chunks of Scripture. In a couple of weeks, we're going to take 67 whole verses, okay? This week, we're taking the whole chapter 20, okay? I say that to you 
because I want you to be doing something else, homework. We're in Genesis 21 this, or Genesis 20 this week. Church, where are we going to be next week? 21. You guys are really good. One of the ways that you can benefit most on a Sunday morning is if you have come next week and you've read Genesis 21 a few times. It will help you. It will help you. We're going to cover Genesis 20 this morning, so open your Bible or your phone or your tablet or whatever and turn off Facebook and Twitter and open your Bible app, okay? Genesis 20, verse 1. From there, well, where is there? Well, I I don't know about you, but I need help. I need to see this in my mind, right? He has been, Abram and Sarah have been living near Mamre, the Oaks of Mamre. Remember, that's near Hebron, or what some of us might call Hebron, okay? So from there, from Hebron, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev. Like, Negev, what is that? Well, that would be the area between Israel and Egypt. If you think about, about Israel being north and, and, and up here, then you have Egypt down here, Right? So that Negev is that wilderness between, between Egypt and Israel, okay? We don't know why he's moving, we just know he's moving, okay? So he moves there to the Negev, and he lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. I promise this will be the last time I stop in my reading, but I think it helps us to understand. He's living in what will one day become Philistine territory, and the guy that, that he's going to meet, Abimelech, is, 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 a, is one of the first-generation Philistine kings, okay? So, so that kind of gives us a little context. Verse 2, and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, that ought to be ringing bells in your head, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. She's an old woman, but she still must be a looker. Honestly, Right? right? She must be a beautiful woman. He sends and he takes her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say to himself to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, Return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. 
And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children, for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So on the heels of the tragic account of Lot, and all of the mess that Lot got into, God in his wisdom, the Holy Spirit writes for us another tragedy. And this is the tragedy of persistent, besetting sin that dogged Abraham. I think everybody in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, we can relate to Abraham. There are certain things in our life that are constant temptations that that pull at us, that become our besetting sins. Maybe it's that urge to get the last word. Maybe it's I consume too much. Maybe I'm out of control in some area of my life. Maybe there's this desire that I just cannot get control of. But every single one of us, when we're not walking in the Spirit, are prone to give in to some sin that's pulling at us. The sin, you know, that crouches at the heart of your door, just waiting for you to get a little weak. And it pounces when we're not prepared. Usually sin pounces when we get prideful, right? When we think we have it under control. Like, you know, I haven't said one mean thing all week, you dirty, rotten pig. Right? That's when it happens, whenever we get a little overconfident. And here we find Abraham on the move. As I said, we don't know why he's on the move, but he's headed into Philistine territory. And he knows the kind of people that are there. He knows what the rulers are like. And so what we find out is, is that Abraham brings up the agreement again that he has with Sarah, that he made with Sarah. And now some 25 years later, after attempting the same ploy in Egypt back that we saw in Genesis chapter 12, 25 years later, and having it blow up in his face, do you remember church, did it end well for him in Genesis 12? He walked out of Egypt a rich man, but was he highly embarrassed and was his pride totally knocked flat? Yeah. He and Sarah try the lie again. They try the lie again. Now, this morning, if you're sitting here and you don't have a temptation to lie, you're thinking to yourself, what a bunch of idiots. But if you battle with truthfulness, you understand exactly where he's at this morning. You you understand exactly where he's at. But as I look at this, I have to ask myself, almost like a forensic scientist, what happened here? What is going on in Abraham's heart that now 25 years later, he's going to try this same thing again? what's, What's going on here? And one of the things that I have to come up with is, and I have to factor in, is how much good that God has done in his life. 
Let's just review a little bit. From, from the time that he was in Egypt to now the time that he's in Philistine territory, church, has God done a lot of good things for Abraham? Has he done a lot of good things? After all, in the middle of that sin in Egypt, did he not walk out a wealthy man? He did. He left Egypt a very wealthy man. God blessed him financially, right? Even though he didn't deserve it. And, and now he's sojourning and God's taken him through the land and he's shown him all the borders of the land. And he said, this is going to be your inheritance, right? And he's told him, he's made a promise with him that you're going to be the father of a great nation and I'm going to do all these things for you. Remember Genesis chapter 15 and where we read that important verse, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's on the heels of God making this huge promise to him, this covenant with him that he's going to make of him a great nation. Spiritually speaking, should Abraham be riding high church? Come on, should he be? Think about yourself. Has God done good things for you? Has he done a lot of good things for you? Every day when you wake up and you breathe air, has God done something good for you? And you can pick up his word where he wants to talk to you. Is he doing good for you? Even though your work stinks and your relationships are falling apart with certain people and things aren't exactly the way you wanted at your church and you can list all these negative things, isn't God still being good to you this morning? Absolutely, right? And yet, there are times that we just willingly follow the pull of sin, don't we? Don't we? In fact, we're in the middle of it, and we're like, what am I doing? And then we're like, yeah, I'm just going to keep going. Some of you are laughing because you know that's the way it is, right? You're right in the middle of it, and you're like, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but whatever, just go ahead, just doing it, Right? Before we get to analyzing what's going on with Abraham, I want to point out something that's really important here. And this text brings it out to bear. And this is a lesson that fathers, you need to teach your children, and you need to teach it over and over and over and over again, because you need it and your kids need it. And the lesson is this, sin never affects just the one who is sinning. Sin never affects just the one who's sinning. It affects a lot of people. And I want you to see the effect that Abraham's sin, Abraham and Sarah's sin, I'm going to lump them together here. And I want to, I want to, I want to just kind of unpack this for a second, if you will. Sin affects Abraham in a mighty way, right? Because as soon as Abraham tells that lie, what is his conscience doing? What does your conscience do when you do something you know you're not supposed to do? Some of you right now are sitting here like, does he know what's going on in my head right now? But, but what does sin do whenever you, whenever you follow it? it? It creates guilt, right? And what does your conscience do? If you're the child of God, your conscience, because you have the Holy Spirit within you, your conscience is being used to say this, you're doing wrong, you're doing wrong, you're doing wrong, you should feel guilty, you should feel guilty. And so Abraham's dealing with the guilt of that. Not only that, Abraham is dealing with, with something that, that if you've ever told a lie, you, you've had to deal with this. He's dealing with the mental gyrations that go along with telling a lie. You know what I'm talking about? One lie leads to what else? Another lie, which leads to what else? And then pretty, pretty soon, you don't remember the first lie you told, right? Right? 
And what I have found is there's always somebody who's keeping a better track of my lies than me. And so Abraham has to go through those mental gyrations. Not only is Abraham affected, but think about the effect on Sarah. You think Sarah's affected by Abraham's sin and her own sin? Once again, she is in harm's way. Okay? The first time they tried this, where did she end up? She ended up in Pharaoh's household, right? Okay? The most powerful man in the world, and now she's there. She doesn't have her husband there to protect her, and, and, and things are not looking good for her. So she thinks to herself, you know what? 25 years ago, this worked so well. Let's do it again. Right? So she participates in the lie with her husband, and the Philistine king, shocking, does what? You would be really nice in my harem. And he takes her. That sin doesn't just affect those two that are doing it, though, does it? Does it have an effect on Abimelech? Okay, Abimelech... As, as a as a unregenerate king who, who is who is used to having power, he's doing everything within his right to take her. You're in my land, you're not married, you're gonna be a part of my harem. Problem is, he's taken a married woman, he's taken another man's wife. And not only is is he in trouble, because in verse 3, God declares him a dead man. How would you like to be woken up in a dream and and God talk to you and say, you're a dead man? Might be the first case of a a middle-aged man wetting the bed. This guy is waking up, and not only is he affected, his servants are affected. His whole household is affected. His whole nation is affected. Verses 9 and 17, look at verse 9. What have you done to us and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Verse 17, you want to know what the effect was? Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they could bear children. Sin has a profound effect on us and on people around us that we never intended for it to have an effect on. You think Abraham thought about how it was going to affect Abimelech and his kingdom? Who was Abraham thinking about, church? He wasn't even thinking about his wife, was he? He was thinking about himself. And that's usually a good indication that we're about to do something we shouldn't be doing. If it's totally motivated by self, it's probably the wrong thing to be doing. And so Abraham has gone and he has made a big mess of it, hasn't he? He's made a huge mess of it. And if you're God and if I'm God, after all the good that we've done for Abraham, and Abraham knowing the first time that he did this, you know, can you imagine your parents, you've done this, right? Parents, you've ever had your, your kids do something really boneheaded and dumb, willful and sinful? Has that ever happened? And you might forgive them one time and give them grace, but what about the second time? Oh, it's the full wrath and fury of mom and dad, Right? And maybe God 
is sitting in heaven and thinking that, I don't know, but here's what I know, that we have a very faithful God. We have a very faithful God. You see, God had made a covenant with Abraham, had he not? We've talked about that. We've seen that already in the pages of Genesis. He made a covenant, and was that covenant based on Abraham's ability to do things, or was it based on the fact that, that God is who he is, and it was based on God's character? What was that covenant based on, church? It was based on his character, right? It's the same kind of covenant and agreement that he makes with us whenever he redeems us. It's not on our behavior, because if it's on our behavior, none of us are getting saved, right? 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 Church, right? Salvation by grace through faith alone, right, church? Not our works, right? So there's nothing we're doing. Abraham could do nothing here to earn God's love. It was an unconditional, one-sided covenant that he made, and here's the beauty of it. Abraham's disobedience didn't nullify that contract, that covenant. It didn't nullify it. And I want you to see how God intervenes. The very fact in verse 3 that Abimelech dreams this dream, it may be the most fearsome dream he's ever dreamed, but it is God's grace. It's God's grace. He stopped him short, didn't he? I'm not trying to be gross, but there's only one reason you put a woman in your harem. Are you catching my drift? There's only one reason you do that. Verse 4, it's clear, Abimelech had not approached her. And so as he's in this stupor, as God has awakened him in this dream, he says back to God, are you going to kill an innocent man here? You're going to kill an innocent people? I haven't done anything. And in fact, he goes on in verse 5, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. And he said, my heart is pure in this. In the integrity of my heart, the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Have you ever done the right, the right thing and still gotten in trouble for doing it? It happens. Talk to my oldest daughter. She'll tell you all about the time I yelled at her for being so good. It's true. It's true. I was an idiot father. I still am. I yelled at her for being good. Here's Abimelech. He's now found himself in harm's way, and he's, he's, doing, the, he's doing the thing that, that's right here. He's, he's, he's innocent in this. But I want you to catch what God says in verse 6. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. If you ever doubt it, don't ever doubt it. God knows all. He's keeping track. He's keeping track. He knows that Abimelech is innocent in this. And then even further... Who's the one that kept Abimelech? Was it Abimelech's ability to have self-control, or who's the one who kept him from sinning? It's God. God kept him from doing it. And he says, therefore, I did not let you touch her. That's grace right there, right? That's grace. And then God offers the remedy. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. That's a new term for Abraham, isn't it? He's a prophet. Meaning he just speaks for God. And, and, he can, and he can pray on your behalf to God. He, he, he's my man, if you will. It's God's way of saying, Abraham's my man. Now, when you, Abimelech hears that, he's probably like, what? This guy, the liar? This guy? He's your prophet? 
It doesn't say much about Abraham, but it says a whole lot about our God. Our God uses broken people just like you and me to be his spokespeople. Go figure. Go figure. So he says, return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So, we have a faithful God. But I want you to see this sin and and how it worked in Abraham's heart. Because you and I are no different than Abraham, okay? We're people, just like Abraham. And so, Abimelech... Can you imagine what Abimelech would have been like in verse 8 when he woke up in the morning? He's a king, right? Kings are used to getting what they want, right? Can you imagine him calling his servants in? Where is Abraham? I need him now. Get him. Bring him to me. So he rose up early in the morning, verse 8, called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. I have to ask myself, why are they afraid? Is it fair to say that they at least have a base level of a fear of God here? What's the one thing that's just happened in the preceding chapters that might help them with a fear of God? Do you suppose word of Sodom and Gomorrah had made it to to Philistine country? Yeah. And so now there is this reverence, this fear of God. And he brings Abraham in, verse 9. What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Question after question after question, and they're all legitimate questions, are they not, church? They're all legitimate questions. Here is this pagan king talking to the man of God, and he is saying, what are you thinking, dude? To put it in today's language, right? What are you thinking, dude? And then he asked the most important question, and it's a really important question, and it clues us into what's going on in Abraham's heart. Verse 10, Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see? What did you see? How many of you get afraid about the things that you see in this world? You ever get afraid when you open a letter, a bill? You ever get afraid when you get online on your medical portal and you look at the reports? We all can be like Abraham and be afraid of the things that we see. If you watch the news, it's quite fearful at times, is it not? I got a recommendation for you. Turn off the news, pick up your Bible, you'll be fine. Too many of us watch too much news. And we start believing conspiracy theories and all the garbage that's out there. And, and I want to tell you this, there's no conspiracy theory in this book. Amen. Just read this, okay? That was free, by the way. What did you see? And Abraham answers what he saw. Verse 11, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. In this instance, the Philistine king has far more integrity than the man of God, does he not? 
And we get, we get some idea here as to Abraham's thought pattern. <clears throat> Abraham goes into this foreign country where, where, where he is probably, he's probably passed through before, but now he comes to this foreign country and he's going to spend some time there. And the first thing he says is, there's no fear of God here. And when you say that, what are you saying about yourself? I'm better than all these people. What is that called, church? Pride. How many of you are battling pride? No one's, pr- no one's humble enough to admit it. Right? We all battle pride in some form or fashion. You're sitting there with your family today. These are my pride and joy. No, they're just brats like every other kid. True? Some of you are sitting with your adult kids. They're still brats. We get proud about stuff, don't we? It's the way we're made. It's the way we're wired. It's the way our enemy knows how to attack us. What got Adam and Eve in trouble in the garden? Was it pride? I'm going to be like God. Adam, eat this. You'll be like God. Okay, cool. Right? Abraham's downfall began with a proud heart. Because the truth of the matter is, was there more fear of God in those people in that moment than there was in Abraham? Church, was there? There was more fear of God in Abimelech and his people than there was in Abraham. If Abraham truly feared God, he wouldn't be out telling a lie. He got overconfident. You and I can get overconfident too. You know... It's been so many months since I've had to deal with this sin in my life. Boom, that usually means you're about to hit the wall, right? We get overconfident. We think we got it under control. And that pride came from a self-reliant heart. That's where pride comes from. It comes from a heart that relies on itself. So Abraham gets in this situation, and rather than when he gets there and he thinks that there's no fear of God here, rather than appealing to his heavenly Father who has guided him every step of the way, who has taken care of him every step of the way, who has made incredible promises to him, what does he do? You know what? I think I'm going to go with my wisdom here because my wisdom usually works really well. Before you point a finger at him, Every one of us in this room could come up here, stand before this microphone and admit to doing the same thing, couldn't we? Going to use my wisdom. And what happens is, when we start to rely on our wisdom, we become very afraid. Because there's no faith, and when there's no faith, there usually is fear, right? The reason that you get so afraid when you watch the news and you worry about our country crumbling is that you don't have faith that God's got this under control. Can I say that again? You don't have faith that God's got this under control. Folks, understand this. Our world is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And our country is a part of this world. Guess what? Our country is going to get what? Worse. But who's got it under control? Who wins in the end? Okay, we sure on that? Okay, good. So we have, a, we have a heart that's proud. We now have a heart that's afraid. And what is, what is the whole cause of this? 
faithlessness. Faithlessness. All of a sudden, this great man of faith is acting like a coward. Isn't he? He's acting like a total coward. I don't know what happened to Abraham. I don't even know sometimes how it happens to me. But, but there are times when I just all of a sudden realize, you are acting totally and walking totally by sight and not by faith here, Scarberry. Abraham's faith had evaporated. He really didn't believe that God was going to take care of him in this circumstance. So what he did is, he said, you know what? I'm going to take matters in my own hands. And Sarah, you and I are going to have to go back to that story about you and I being brother and sister. And so he relies on his own ability, which is rooted in pride, right? To get him out of this jam. And he gets himself in a really bad situation. Sometimes I think we forget the simple how many of you ever memorized Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 in your life? When I say it, you're going to remember it. Most of you have memorized this, right? That's the simple stuff, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your way, and He will make your path straight. Is that, is that true, or is that a lie? And it's pretty simple, isn't it? Don't trust in your own wisdom. Trust in the wisdom of God. That's simple. We can understand that on Sunday morning, but Monday morning when real life hits us, that's kind of hard at times, isn't it? God certainly doesn't understand the situation that I'm in here. I think I better just do it my way. How many of you have been guilty of doing that? I do that a lot. And here's the thing. Abraham's story bears this out. Is Abraham's path right now straight, church? It's anything but straight, isn't it? It is a crooked mess. He has trusted in his own wisdom, and, and, and now he is in a huge jam. He's acted in pride, and now he's going to have to be humbled. Have you figured that out, too? When you act in pride, there's always a way that God finds to bring you back into line, and he humbles you. There's nothing more humbling than having an unbeliever point out the sin in your life. <laughs> and that's what's happening here, right? Here's the man who's walking by faith, and here's the unbeliever saying, you are an idiot who almost got me killed. What were you thinking? But I want you to see God's grace in action here. Verse 14 Abimelech doesn't just take the, the, the advice from God to say, hey, have him pray for you. He wants to make sure that he prays really well, okay? So what's he do? He gives him sheep, oxen, male servants, and female servants. Does this sound eerily similar to Genesis 12 when, when Abraham was in Egypt? Eerily similar, right? He gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And on top of that, verse 15, you're not going to be a foreigner here anymore. Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And then note what he does with Sarah. Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Let me put this into perspective for you. I'm not going to put a dollar value on it. I'm going to put a person value on this. Back in this time, the custom was if you were very wealthy, you paid for your bride, right? You would give a dowry. The, the highest ever recorded dowry is 20 pieces of silver. 
what he just gave, what he just gave would pay for a lot of brides, wouldn't it? A lot of brides. And this is what he says. This is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. There's another group of people that were affected here by their sin, and it comes out. All of Abraham's household saw this play out for a second time, didn't they? And they're beginning to wonder. Sarah, again, over there. I, you know, can you hear the, the, the maid servants talking? I wonder what really happened when Sarah was at Abimelech's house. I don't know. I heard this. Well, I heard this too. She came back smiling. No, this money right here, and he declares, it's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and for everyone to know that you're vindicated. That's grace. Did Sarah really deserve that? She deserved to have the shame of rumors being talked about her, doesn't she? She put herself in that position. And what does God do? He gives her grace. Is he the same God today, church? Is he the same God today? When you and I deserve shame, many times he just gives us grace, doesn't he? And on top of that, Abraham does pray for Abimelech, and God keeps his word to Abimelech. That's grace, isn't it? Can you imagine how humbling it is for Abraham to have to pray for the guy that he sinned against? When God humbles you, he humbles you properly, doesn't he? The same God is our God today, and and the same gracious God is our same gracious God today. He loves us enough to humble us when we get too puffed up. He loves us enough to give us what we don't deserve. You and I might be tempted to abuse that grace and just say, well, he's going to just give me grace anyway. But I would say to you that if you consider it from God's perspective, here we have a God who protects us when we make sinful decisions, a God who gives us grace when, and gives us forgiveness when we don't deserve it. That, to me, is a pretty powerful motivator to love him and obey him. Wouldn't you agree with me? Now, I want you to turn with me to, Gen- or to Hebrews chapter 11. Because I want you to see the extent of God's grace. In Genesis, he tells us the unvarnished story of Abraham, does he not, church? He tells us the unvarnished story, warts and all. But in Hebrews, when we're dealing with the subject of faith, go down to verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place. Verse 9, by faith, he went in to live in the land of promise. He was looking for a city. Verse 10, verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Verse verse, um, 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who had received the promises. If you read from verse 8 down to verse 18, you know what you won't find? You know what you won't find, church? And by the way, Abraham went to Egypt and really screwed up, and then he went to Philistine territory 25 years and really screwed up. Is that historical fact, church? But when God writes Abraham's story in Hebrews chapter 11, what parts does he omit? The parts that he's covered with the blood of Christ. 
And if he does it for Abraham, he does it for you and he does it for me. Those parts don't get told. How do I know that? Because the word tells us that, that he takes our sin as far as the east is from the west. He buries it in the deepest sea. That's poetic way of saying that God just doesn't remember our sins anymore. And I'm so glad. As I get older, I'm getting forgetful, but I don't forget a lot of the bad stuff I've done. You ever you found yourself being like that? We have a God that, that in Christ forgives us. And what you see in Hebrews chapter 11 is God counting Abraham's righteous deeds, not his sinful deeds. Wow. Now, I have to qualify this. Who gave Abraham the, the ability to, do, to perform these righteous deeds? God himself did, right? So really, who does the credit go to? This isn't about Abraham. The, Hebrews chapter 11 is about a faithful God who enabled Abraham and these other heroes of the faith to do what they did. But when he writes Abraham's story for us, he leaves out the stuff that you and I would be tempted to put in, right? And aren't you glad he leaves that out of your life as well, your life story? The only way to get that stuff out of your life story, though, is to be found in Christ. Because here's what the word says, if you're not in Christ, you still stand responsible before God for all your sins. He hasn't blotted them out of your story. <laughs> but in Christ, in the salvation that Christ gives, you can have all that bad stuff, past, present, and future, totally blotted out of your story. Isn't that a glorious thing? That is a glorious thing. And the end result of that is this. Think about this. I know we're not supposed to, but on this earth, we still compare ourselves to others, don't we? Even in this church, I know it's perfect, but we still compare ourselves to others, right? Guess what? When each one of us steps in to heaven, when we cross the portal and we grow into heaven, guess what? Each one of us is on equal footing. It's saved by the grace of God, Christ's righteousness. That's all we carry in. We don't carry in all the achievements here on this earth. We don't carry in the sin, the baggage, all that. We just carry in the righteousness of Christ, and we're all there equally by rights because Christ has given to us redemption. And that's glory. That's glory. So if that's the reality in heaven, and the church is supposed to be an image of what it's supposed to be like in the future, shouldn't we that be the way that we treat one another now? Shouldn't it be? Stop the record-keeping of one another. You know that time three years ago, Pastor Dan, when you did that one thing to me? Every one of you can say that. You can say that in the last 10 minutes, right? We got to stop our record-keeping because God isn't a God who keeps records. He's a God who forgives. And to be truly divine is to be a forgiving a person, an understanding person, a gracious person. And the only way that is, is in Christ. Father, what a lesson for us. What a lesson that when we turn to Hebrews chapter 11, you don't mention all the misdeeds and the sins and the, and the willful disobedience 
of Abraham. All you mention are all the good things that he did because you were good to him. And it's clear to me that you are writing each one of our stories, Father. I pray that as we live out our lives, that we would, by our righteous and gracious actions, give you plenty of things to write there. Give you plenty of things to write there for your glory so that your grace might be made big in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.